listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 266. In this episode, we are talking about British strikes, past and present. This season of Belaboured is brought to you in part by the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, as well as our listeners who support us at patreon.com slash belaboured. We'd like to thank all of you who've supported us over the past 10 whole years of bringing you labor news and views from around the world. Labor journalism is on the rise, but like, well, so many of you, we haven't had a raise in a while, and we count on whatever you can send to keep us going. We've made it a point not to paywall anything on this podcast so that our work is accessible to all of the workers we talk to and with, whether or not you can pay. So if you can, it really helps us if you can go to patreon.com slash belabored and sign up to be a monthly supporter of our work. And now to celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have a limited number of work won't love you back tote bags for new Patreon subscribers. So sign up to support us now and get one of those as well as our other wonderful gifts. And if you work in an organization that would like to sponsor a future belabored season, contact us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Thanks for all your support. But first, the news. As you heard about recently on this podcast, the Rutgers University faculty, grad worker, and adjunct unions strike ended, and now they have a contract that includes big raises across the board, as well as other details that are worth taking note of. Adjunct faculty won raises worth 43.7% over the life of the contract. For graduate workers and TAs, the raises are worth 32.6%. And for full-time faculty, the raises at average salary level are 14%. Postdocs won raises of 27.9%. Some other details in the agreement reported at NorthJersey.com include, quote, Graduate workers starting PhDs in 2024 won a commitment from the university to fund them through five years of research. Contracts for non-tenure-track part-time faculty will be presumptively renewed, and for longer terms, meaning the educators no longer have to renew contracts every semester. Medical faculty won parental leave and tenure-like contracts, which the union said will give them more time with their students and research, as opposed to focusing primarily on patient care. Graduate fellows will be reclassified as teaching and graduate assistants and are eligible for benefits included in those positions, and researchers whose work was disrupted by the COVID-19 health emergency get an extension year to complete." End quote. Out of 9,000 striking workers, 93% of them voted to take the deal. Of course, no union wins everything it set out to at the bargaining table. Community demands like a rent freeze on Rutgers-owned properties did not make it into the final contract. And 6,000 Rutgers staff are still in negotiations in separate unions for their own contracts. That includes the Union of Rutgers Administrators representing administrative staff. This vote is the culmination of months of intense efforts by so many people who walked the picket lines and organized with their colleagues. Rebecca Given, friend of the show and president of Rutgers AAUP-AFT, said in a statement. Because of this commitment by our members, we made major gains in these contracts, especially for the most vulnerable and lowest paid of the people we represent. We didn't win everything we wanted, but what we did achieve is a testament to all of us, and we're proud of it, end quote. And friend of the show, Todd Wolfson, VP of Rutgers AAUP-AFT, noted that the faculty are ready if the remaining unions also choose to strike. He said, I hope they do, because we have to continue to teach this university a lesson. 
Starbucks has announced that it is closing two recently unionized locations in Ithaca, New York. The move is seen as part of a nationwide pattern of retaliation for union organizing that has led to what workers say are illegal firings, discriminatory discipline, and systematic intimidation of union supporters. Last summer, Starbucks announced that it was closing locations in several cities, including stores that had just unionized or were preparing for a National Labor Relations Board vote. In April of 2022, all three Starbucks locations in Ithaca voted overwhelmingly to unionize with Starbucks Workers United, a network of Starbucks unions that now numbers about 300 cafes nationwide, backed by the Service Employees International Union. The Ithaca branches were among the first in the country to win their National Labor Relations Board elections, bouncing off of the momentum of the first Starbucks union victories in Buffalo. Ithaca was, and remains, the first city where every Starbucks has unionized. That is, until May 26, when the stores will be closed, and a lot of Ithacans are not happy about it. I am currently in Ithaca on a postdoctoral fellowship at Cornell, so I attended a couple of rallies last week at which students, local community members, and workers condemned the pending closures and vowed to keep fighting to defend the union movement at this global coffee giant. In addition to the workers filing claims of unfair labor practices before the National Labor Relations Board, students have been pressuring the university administration to divest from Starbucks by stopping the sale of Starbucks-branded products at campus facilities. Full disclosure, some of the students involved in organizing this effort have also been students in my Intro to Labor History course, and I'm very proud of them. Evan Sunshine, a barista and Cornell student, spoke at the rally about what the closures represent, about the efforts to unionize Starbucks nationwide. I am a junior in Iowa at Cornell, and I've been a Starbucks worker for three and a half years. Well, yeah. I guess you can say I was, because I'm being forced out of my job in two weeks from now. You guys didn't know, actually, we have a very rich history at Starbucks Workers United in Ithaca, which Colia just talked about before. But if you don't know, right now, well, yesterday, uh, workers walked out on strike for our final strike in Ithaca history. Uh, and this is an excerpt from our strike letter that we sent to the district manager. You may not be aware of the rich history of the union in our city, or maybe you are. We successfully formed a union in landslide victories at all three locations in Ithaca, the College Avenue store, the Ithaca on the Common store, and the South Meadow Street store. However, we experienced ruthless treatment by management during the course of our campaign through far after our victory to the present. Even the National Labor Relations Board alleged in a November 22 complaint that Starbucks engaged in union busting in the three stores, from terminating six union leaders to reducing store hours against partners' availability to permanently closing a store. Yet we have persecuted. We have not backed down. Maybe you did not know, but we have been on strike six times over various unfair labor practices we allege that the company committed. As you can see, we have a history of fighting back. And we want the public to know this should not put a chill on organizing. This should not scare people because right now we are fighting back. We should be a symbol of not something, not to be scared, but we are a symbol of hope. We are a symbol of community, of people fighting back. And right now the community is showing up for us, which just proves our point. So thank you so much for being out here today. As a Cornell student, as a Starbucks worker, I really appreciate it. We all really appreciate it. So thank you. That was Evan Sunshine, Starbucks worker and Cornell student with Starbucks Workers United. And hello from Minneapolis, where I am doing some reporting for my next book and just happen to be overlapping with the end of the legislative cycle, a cycle that in this state has been particularly productive for working people. There's the new Warehouse Worker Safety Bill, the Warehouse Worker Protection Act, aimed specifically at Amazon warehouses and spearheaded by the workers of the Awud Center, who were years ago the first to get Amazon to the bargaining table over the issue of time off for daily prayer. 
While bargaining with Amazon has proved difficult for the many unions and worker organizations targeting the megacorporation, this bill includes many of the provisions that workers complain of at Amazon facilities all over the world. In a piece at The Nation, Abdi Muse, the director of Oud, and two of the state legislators who backed the bill write, quote, The bill requires employers to provide warehouse workers with written information about all quotas and performance standards they are subject to, in addition to how those quotas and standards are determined. Employers must provide this information in the workers' primary language, a crucial requirement for warehouses in our state, where more than 86,000 Somali-born immigrants and family members live. Importantly, the bill also stipulates that employers cannot fire or take disciplinary action against a worker who fails to meet a quota that wasn't disclosed, disarming one of the primary excuses Amazon may use to punish or fire workers who seek better conditions or organize. The bill also mandates that if Amazon or a particular worksite has a rate of injury of 30% higher than that year's industry average, the Minnesota Commissioner of Labor and Industry will open an investigation. Finally, the bill establishes a private right of action for workers, meaning current or former workers can bring a civil suit for damages and injunctive relief to obtain compliance with this law. And this bill doesn't just cover Amazon workplaces. It applies to all warehouses with more than 250 workers at a site or 1,000 across the state, end quote. The providing of data to workers is and will continue to be a key point of struggle in the coming decades as wearable tech, app-based work, and so-called artificial intelligence collect and create ever more data about where and how we work. And so this bill provides a great precedent for the future. It's worth noting, too, that Amazon has retaliated against workers, including by closing the sorting center in Shakopee and dispersing the workers at that center, presumably in hopes of breaking up the hard-won solidarity those workers had built. But the workers are not giving up, and this bill is a reminder that workers have many ways of getting their demands met, and that it is possible to regulate even the biggest tech companies like Amazon. And that's just one of the wins for workers that passed through the state legislature this week. The massive labor bill includes provisions that provide sick and safe time for nearly every worker in the state accrued by work time, that allow unionized teachers to negotiate over class size, and that create a board that will set workforce standards in nursing homes across the state. The bill bans non-compete agreements and increases wage theft protections for construction workers. It increases safety protections for meatpacking workers and ergonomics requirements for all workers. And perhaps most important, or at least most striking to me, it bans captive audience meetings, those compulsory anti-union meetings that companies like Amazon and Starbucks use to discourage and often threaten workers who are unionizing. And so congratulations to all the workers and organizations that fought for the myriad parts of this bill, and a reminder that though things are bleak a lot of the time, it is possible to win and win big when workers organize and fight. Warehouse work is known for being rough, but today's warehouse workers are exposed to unprecedented kinds of occupational hazards, from the physical strain of packing boxes at a frenetic pace to dealing with the malfunctioning of forklifts and other machinery. Research by the National Employment Law Project reveals that warehouse work is disproportionately dangerous in New York State, and those dangers disproportionately affect workers of color. In 2021, NELP reports that, quote, warehouse workers suffered such injuries at a rate of 6.5 cases per 100 workers, which is quadruple the rate of the New York State private sector average of 1.4 cases per 100 workers, unquote. 
The study points out that New York State warehouse workers are disproportionately Black and Latinx. Nearly 90% of warehouse worker injuries in the state were, quote, severe enough that workers could not continue performing their normal job duties and had to either change job duties or take time off work to recover, unquote. The most common injuries include musculoskeletal injuries, such as lower back injury, which are, quote, often caused by the rapid, forceful, and awkward movements without sufficient recovery time, unquote. And Amazon is, of course, the 800-pound gorilla of the warehouse industry, which appears to be dragging down safety standards across the state. Nelp reports, quote, Amazon warehousing and facilities workers in New York State are injured at a rate of 8.2 per 100 workers, a rate the equivalent of one injury for every 12 full-time equivalent employees, compared to a rate of 6.9 workers in non-Amazon warehousing and logistics facilities, unquote. Across the state, Amazon workers experience the most severe type of occupational injury at a 37% higher rate than non-Amazon workers in the industry. Chronic underreporting is also a problem. At one facility in Shodak, New York, Nelp notes that, quote, Amazon failed to record various job-related injuries requiring medical attention over a six-week period in June of 2022, which, if annualized, would have increased the total injury rate by about 50% at that facility, unquote. No wonder that safety concerns during COVID were one of the key factors that spurred the first successful union drive at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island. According to the report, existing state and federal regulations are woefully inadequate for protecting workers from these hazards at warehouses. Workers have extremely limited legal recourse against employers, even when the Occupational Safety and Health Administration finds that the company is culpable for safety problems. Employers have broad leeway to delay any mandated remedy through the appeals process, and workers, meanwhile, are often barred from seeking relief through the civil courts. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration also has little ability to protect workers from retaliation for reporting safety problems at work. Finally, Nelp points out that, quote, neither federal law nor New York state law currently requires employers to design jobs in a manner that reduces the risk of musculoskeletal injuries, unquote. Sadly, many of the injuries that the agency tracks are completely preventable, often with simple design changes in the workplace. But employers have little incentive to actually address issues like ergonomic design, especially when the penalties for safety violations on the federal level remain extremely low. Among the recommendations for improving occupational safety and health regulations in New York are requiring expert evaluations of work sites to check for risks of musculoskeletal problems, mandating safety training for workers, and giving workers a private right of action so they can sue employers when government agencies fail to enforce the law. And I would add organizing at your workplace so that you have a union to defend you when your employer tries to wriggle out of its responsibility is also probably a good idea. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. The strike wave across Britain continues with workers fighting and in many cases winning inflation-busting wage hikes and improved conditions, driving out bad bosses, and demanding recognition for all that essential work during the pandemic. But the conservative government isn't done trying to crush the unions, and if they can't do it on the shop floor, they're going to try to do it with legislation and in the courts. This week, we take a step back and consider the strike wave in the context of the last 50 or so years of British history, history that includes all sorts of repressive measures aimed at breaking the power of the working class. To discuss this, we're joined by longtime organizer Joe Rollin with Unite the Union and journalist, author, and filmmaker Morag Livingston 
co-author of Charged, How the Police Try to Suppress Protest. Well, hi, my name is Joe Rollin. I'm an organizer for Unite the Union, and I'm also one of the founding members of the Orgreave Truth and Justice Campaign. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having us. I'm Morag Livingstone. I am a filmmaker, writer and author. Um, we've got a recent book out that I co-wrote with Matt Foote, who's a solicitor, um, about the police and protests. It's called Charged, How the Police Try to Suppress Protest. So I wanted to start off with where we are today. So right now, um, and over the past basically year, Britain has been seeing a pretty impressive strike wave. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what's happening, big picture, the cost of living crisis, austerity, and other factors that have led so many workers in so many different industries to go on strike over the past year? Yeah, I'll come in on this one if that's all right. Yeah, we've been uh, waiting for this moment in in Britain for a long time, <laughs> um, we've had um, you know quite low levels of industrial action, but the last eighteen months have seen a, a strike wave, an outbreak of industrial action. Uh, you're quite right, and I think there's uh, numerous reasons for that. I think first off, um, inflation's been running at about ten or eleven percent uh, for about eighteen months now, and at the beginning of uh, last year, uh, we had the Bank of England chief Andrew Bailey make an outrageous statement saying that it was um, wages that were driving inflation and, and not profits. You know, United have been able to do lots of research over that, on that over the last 12 months to prove that totally wrong. In, in fact, wages are, are falling behind for one of the fastest rates for over three decades. And it's rampant profiteering that's driving um, inflation. But on top of that, workers are angry because they've just worked through two years of the pandemic. Um, you know, they were called heroes. And then before the pandemic, of course, we've had 10 years of Tory austerity. We've seen all our services cut to the bone, real wages falling behind. So I think it's been a, you know, just an outpouring of anger. And once one set of workers see another set of workers on a picket line, people want to get involved. And for the first time in decades, we've seen young people on the picket lines as well. So it's quite exciting time for us. And I think just to add to that, there's I think there's a massive gulf between the understanding of our government about what people are going through and, and the reality of that. You know, the, the strikes cover university lecturers, rail workers, and as Joe said, you know, the NHS. It's it's everybody is has suffered under austerity and then to add to that COVID and a lack of wages increasing. And in some cases, such as university lecturers, you know, they're reducing the amount of pension that people get. So there's a real anger, as Joe says, all round. Um, and I think, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, The there was a Unite report which said the top 350 um, companies in the UK have increased profits by 89% since COVID. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you know. Mm -hmm. And how that doesn't contribute to inflation, I don't know. But it yeah. doesn't because you listen to anybody um, outside of Unite, really. Yeah. I mean, just anecdotally, you just need to be stood at the bus stop or in, in the pub and everyone's talking about the strikes and, you know, the vast majority of people are saying good luck to them. Whereas in the past, I think people might have, you know, used words being like unions are greedy, etc. Yeah. Um, that's just not the case at the minute. So. Yeah, we've really seen the tide turn. And do you think there's something around you with, you know, the number of strikes that people have won and the great wages that people have won helping? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Um, people, like I said, people want to be part of a winning team, don't they? Mm -hmm. And um, 
it's always been as an organizer in the union i've always said that you know action breeds more action and and that is without the case proved itself to be true we've recruited more people to the union over the last 18 months than we have done for years and and if you're winning then people want to be part of that team so yeah it's good good times yeah i was thinking last year we had um the liverpool port workers on the podcast and Steve oh, Gerard from Unite, and they won something like 16 or 18% raises, right? 18%. Yeah, that was yeah. a particularly good one for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, ports ports are kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I wanted to ask, like, obviously, I don't expect you both to rattle off every single person who's on strike right now, but who are some of the big ones that are out? And what are the main points of dispute that we're seeing? I think the ones that you'll have, you'll have seen... Um, over in America will be the ones that catch the headlines. So you'll have seen the uh, rail workers and the RMT. That wasn't just about pay. It was about um, redundant potential redundancies and massive changes to working patterns as well. So that dispute were quite complicated. Uh, we saw a big one again in the postal workers, which is the communication workers union. Again, that was about more than pay. That was about the tax to um, terms and conditions as well. The NHS, which is not over. Um, yeah. Don't believe the hype. There's still the RCN, the junior doctors, and unite the union. Um, still, yeah. in fact, our members went out again today. Unfortunately, with the N- NHS, it's a uh, we have twelve different unions um, at the negotiating table, and eight or nine of the some including some of the bigger public sector unions have voted to accept the deal. But there's still us and RCN and doctors. Um, still in industrial dispute on that. So that one's not over either. But the ones that may not have caught your attention in America, the ones that happen in Unite, because we don't have the big public sector media like the other unions do. Um, we have took over 700 disputes in the last 18 months. Wow. 700 uh, individual disputes, and we've won 80% of those. Wow. Which has put um, £300 million back into our workers' pockets, which has pretty amazing and the strike levels are at the highest level they've been for over a decade um yeah. 822,000 days lost last year alone the last time we saw this level of industrial action was again in public sector when the government attacked the pensions in 2011 yeah. and there's no sign of this industrial action stopping either it, it's good times when especially when we're winning that level of uh, disputes yeah. as well yeah, can you tell us just a couple of those other strikes that Unite has had this year? The biggest section of our membership that have took action are the bus workers. Um, I think we've had over 130 disputes in the buses. Again, a lot of them winning double-digit um, pay rises, um, which has been pretty impressive. But in Unite, we cover such a wider range of of workers. It's been everyone from, you know, street cleaners, bus workers university staff, hospital workers. We even had uh, coffin makers out on strike recently yeah. in, in Glasgow. I so that really, that <laughs> really is pretty impressive. Yeah, that was that was a very interesting one. Yeah, Morag, did you want to say anything to this one? Uh, no, I think Drew's pretty much covered everything. I mean, I'm, invo- I'm involved in the University, London University of the Art, uh, UCU strikes because I'm a lecturer, but and that's covering a number of factors, but mainly pensions and working conditions and pay. So it's ongoing as well. Yeah, we've been following that one rather closely as well because that's been sort of ongoing mm. for years now, huh? Yeah, at the moment we're, we're on a, a marking 
strike. So, so as you were saying, this is the biggest wave of of industrial action since 2011, and seems like it's getting the amount of sort of public interest that something hasn't for maybe even longer than that. So I wanted to ask us sort of what's happened and what's changed in the public maybe attitude to bring us to this moment. People have just really sort of had enough of what's happening in society at the minute. And also people literally can't make ends meet. When we talk about inflation, um, if you look at, you know, the cost of food in the supermarkets, um, the cost of transport, the, the cost of petrol, yeah. cost of people's rent, rent and, and mortgages, uh, people's wages just aren't, aren't going far enough. So there's just real anger out there. And there isn't any sort of politicians waiting on the hill to come over the top and save us at the minute. So people are just seeing direct action as the way of getting their fair share of the pie, if you like. Yeah. Um, in Unite, we've had a change of leadership recently. Um, yeah. who's um, committed to putting you know, 100% back in behind workers. We pay one of the few unions that pay strike pay as well. So workers get strike pay from day one when they go out. So in some cases, our lowest paid members are actually, you know, not doing too bad when they're out on strike. So why wouldn't they want to be out on strike? And, um, and that sends a real clear message to our, you know, bad employers that our members are willing to take that action. We also have got tactics in Unite that's uh, unlike a lot of other unions. We deploy strikes plus where necessary so we can look at the forensic accounts of companies, where the shareholders are, where the companies are. And if a, if a company are, you know, are playing really badly and, and not playing by the rules, then we'll, we'll move the share price of companies as well as uh, putting workers on the picket line. So all in all, I think that's given workers confidence to take action. And I think as well, certainly, you know, from the students that I teach since 2010, when the government, the coalition government introduced um, fees for university, there's become an increasing collective awareness. And, you know, they're much more politically active. You know, I teach photojournalism and it's moved from very much artistic ways to certainly amongst the um, undergraduate students to being to documenting politics to documenting what's going on and you know they also young people who are working have also still get that rhetoric that we got work hard and you'll get somewhere now that was kind of never true it just depends on a lot of other things but for young people particularly they can't afford they'll never be able to afford to buy a home you know so the so they're much more aware and I think that they've all kind of shifted to the left again while the government's probably shifted to the right um so there's that challenge and they're much more vocal you know they've got a vast amount of information that they can learn from and see on the internet what's what's going on you know with with social media protests etc etc so I think that their awareness and their consciousness and their realization that this unless something happens this is going to be their lives. Yeah. I, I read I read somewhere recently that the most Googled thing last year is what is a trade union in the UK? <laughs> which, which is pretty, you know, it says a lot, doesn't yeah. it? Um, it does and, so much, right? Yeah. And if you're out on the picket lines, you know, the, the public support for people just driving past, beeping the horns, etc., is amazing. I was on a picket line in London last Monday uh, on May Day outside the uh, St. Thomas's Hospital with our NHS members and a, f- a fire engine came past 
yeah. and they were absolutely blasting their horns and all the nurses, <laughs> uh, you know, cheering the firemen. <laughs> so, you know, there's a, a real sense of solidarity amongst, amongst the class at the minute, which is quite inspiring. I, I think about an article a lot that Matt Stoller wrote in 2011 here when the Wisconsin Capitol uprising was happening. And saying like people might only like unions when they see strikes that like contrary to the sort of belief that like, oh, strikes are bad and unions should hesitate really hard because nobody wants to go on strike that like actually demonstrating that you're willing to fight has a real galvanizing effect on people's willingness to take action themselves. Oh, oh, definitely. It's, um, you know, the atmosphere on the picket lines is it, it's brilliant. People are you know, blasting out music and dancing and, you know, and if you're in a crap low-paid job, you know, we're not much hope for the future, like Morag says, where you work hard but it doesn't pay, then being out on strikes is actually quite liberating um, yeah. and people yeah. get the bug for it, I think. I was involved in a, a, a dispute with some workers about this time last year yeah, um, who were scaffolders and they've all gone to work on in different jobs in different companies now. But I get WhatsApps off them all the time saying they've walked out on strike again. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, it, it, yeah, I think once people get the bug for it, it, it stays with them. And um, I'm hoping that this will have inspired a whole new generation of younger workers who might not have been out on strike before to have that confidence to do it. Part of the reason we're here to talk about this stuff today is is to put it in some context of like, you know, part of the reason that there haven't been big strike waves is that this was kind of literally beaten out of people in the Thatcher days. So I wanted to talk about like the change and the history of sort of policing of workers' actions and how in the Thatcher era particularly, we got a really, really brutal policing of, of labor disputes. Yeah. And I think even before we go there, Sarah, the, I think one of the reasons that um, the Conservative government and Thatcher at the time really came down hard on unions was because of the 70s. So I think, Joe, do you want to talk about Saltley? Because you know more about that. Than yeah. Um, you know, we had really high uh, union membership in the 70s, much, much higher than it is now. I think we're yeah. about a third of what it, it was in the 70s now. Yeah. Um, which is growing now, but thank God, but still nowhere near. But the, the rank and file movement of the 70s, you know, that didn't have to wait for trade union leaders to call action or support action, mm-hmm. should I say, um, was huge. Um, I mean, again, anecdotally, there's a big uh, factory I know in, in Sheffield who were engineers. They had about 500 workers there. And I, knew the, I know the shop steward who worked there. He said there were 490 union members, but 400 of them were in the Communist Party. So it yeah. shows you how, how politically engaged people were. And in the 70s, when the minor strike started, people said they had no no chance of winning the dispute. Um, so what the miners did is that they went to Birmingham and called out the Birmingham workers and, and workers from across Birmingham walked out to support the miners, marched through the city and shut down one of the big fuel depots at Salty Gate. And the police were instructed not to allow that to happen. But because of the overwhelming numbers involved of people taking on official action, they closed the gate, which the, that's the big song, you know, close the gate, close the gate. Yeah. And that eventually led to the downfall of the Tory government, which I'm sure Margaret Thatcher and the rest of her, uh, her Tory cabinet had a, you know, a memory of and were yeah. determined not to allow that again in, to happen again in the 80s. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure they, I mean, they did, Joe, because quite a lot of the... Um, National Archive papers. So in the UK, 
they release papers after 30 years to the National Archive. And a number of those papers where Thatcher is talking about the miners' strike, she refers back to Salt Lake Gate, particularly just before Orgreave. So it's definitely in her mind. Yeah. Um, but what happened before um, they got back into power, the, there was a plan called the Ridley Plan, which was about attacking the unions um, and and bringing them down. But what, when Thatcher got in in 1979 and created a brand new department with it, which had an objective of how they could withstand strikes from energy industries, but particularly the miners' strike. There's a whole report on how to withstand a miners' strike. So in 1981, they callously, in my view, rolled over and accepted the pay claim from the miners so that they could avoid confrontation, then build up coal stocks and be much more ready <laughs> to, to take on the miners. And at the same time, there was a lot of civil unrest. There was um, over-policing of black communities in the UK. There was a lot of racial tension between police and, and communities. Um, and there were riots across Britain. But um, one of them, which was investigated by Lord Scarman in 1981, were the Brixton riots. Right. And he came out, Scarman's recommendations included, we must have much more collegiate policing. And of course, the Home Secretary at the time agreed. <laughs> publicly <laughs> publicly agreed uh, and said yes absolutely we must we must have more training and they kind of maneuvered and twisted the words of Scarman a little bit um, and created behind the scenes a paramilitary manual of tactics which included driving cars at protesters short mm -hmm. shields and truncheons um, horses dogs some of which are still used today and they've been developed over the time since and the important thing about this manual is a couple of important things. At the last minute, it was classified. It was originally intended to be available to all police officers or most police officers. And they kept it the preserve of the senior police officers. Additionally, and what's only recently come to light and we expose in the book, is the extent to which the Home Office and government were involved. There were long rumours that William Whitelaw, the Home Secretary, had signed it off. Um, but we've now got the documents to prove that not only did he sign it off, the Home Office were intrinsically involved in its creation. And they even prepared a statement that if ever this manual of police tactics, draconian police tactics, became public, this is how the Home Secretary would respond. So that was a massive shift. In addition to that, um, possibly like now, is that Thatcher supported the corporate over the the you know the national interest and the people and put a lot of money a lot of money into breaking the unions and the strength of the unions so as you were saying it became clear that once the papers were released that thatcher sort of deliberately set out to break the unions and zeroed in on the miners as the key union to break and mm -hmm. unfortunately she did succeed you know the question is is what happened that brought about the miners defeat sort of what happened in the broader um trade union movement and what happened in the what was happening in the country that led to Thatcher winning, I guess. As, as we've said, it was um, clear that Thatcher needed to beat, beat the unions to bring in, you know, what we live with now, in this society that we have now is zero hours contracts and all the rest of it. And if she were going to defeat the union movement, she had to defeat the strongest union. And arguably that would have been the miners. Um, 
you know, we talked a bit a minute ago about what happened in the 70s. Uh, they weren't going to allow that that to happen again. Um, but I think what Thatcher did in the 80s uh, quite cleverly is that she, she took on the union separately. Arthur Scargill, the leader of the miners' unions, quite famously said, uh, you know, this is a battle for the whole union movement. If we don't win this, we'll, we'll suffer the consequences for generations to come. And, and, and how right was he? Unfortunately, even though the membership of the unions were out collecting money, supporting picket lines, there's a famous uh, women against pit closures who supported their husbands out on strike for a whole year. Yeah. We had warm words from the rest of the trade union movement um, of support, very warm words, but no action were ever taken by the other unions. No, yeah. no secondary action were called um, to support them, like we saw at Salt Lake Gate, which we just touched upon. So it was the you know the lack of solidarity between unions um, that let down the miners, and of course the disgraceful um, words from the Labour Party leadership as well, um, who were too timid to take on Thatcher politically and support the workers. So yeah, they were let down by our own, own side, unfortunately, and and we live with that um, consequence to this day. And I think yeah, and also you know while that was you know in the face of of miners and the UK generally, um, two of the biggest lies around the miners' strike was that the government said that they wouldn't be interfering in the strike and that they were not involved in its policing. And even, you know, today there's references to that, that the government is not involved in operational policing at all. At the beginning of the strike, Thatcher was told that the policing around Nottingham area, which is an area that continued working, um, to a large extent, not everyone, but um, quite a number. But they said she was told the policing around Nottingham was important to ensure the longevity of the strike, basically to starve the miners back to work, to break the power of the militants and the NUM, as they called them. And then the years before the strike, civil servants had also built up relations with the police. And he met the police a few weeks before Orgreave um, to discuss sharing tactics with other forces um, but that none of that was the biggest lie. National Archive files have also revealed that behind the scenes, Thatcher organised the state spying on the miners. She set up a national reporting centre, which is a centralised area to coordinate um, the police, mutual aid of police officers from different forces. And what that mutual aid is, it always makes me laugh because in, the police are allowed to gather together from lots of different forces in one area in order to defeat the miners, but the miners weren't allowed to cross a border between counties or go to another strike to support other workers. You know, so they'd really, and that was in law, they'd stopped secondary picketing, as they called it. Um, But the police were allowed to. And then, you know, the the National Reporting Centre was not just, we found out not just about coordinating logistics, but also about disseminating information to chief constables, that intelligence was then shared with the Home Secretary, who reported it to a special cabinet with senior ministers set up by Thatcher. She chaired these meetings, and it's got a lovely Orwellian name of MISC 101. <laughs> and that met at least twice a week to discuss the miners' strike. Um, it was often chaired by Thatcher, as I said, and they show how organised the government's and police intelligence was throughout the strike in a, in a centralised way. And later on in the strike, they set up a national intelligence unit, um, which the Secret Service were involved in that. And before it was opened, there was a new Home Secretary, Leon Britton. He encouraged 
a specific objective to obtain information about the criminal activities of those organising with a view to prosecuting senior people. You know, and that would obviously give put some fear. If they can get the top people, then then that can be fear. So it wasn't just the manual. It wasn't just the policing. It was the, all the government were involved and they basically threw money at it as well. Yeah, we were up against it, weren't we? <laughs> Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what happened at Orgreave in particular for um, some of our listeners who maybe don't know that story. And as a good example of the turn towards this really vicious policing of, of strikes. For people who don't know um, what Orgreave is, uh, Orgreave is a big coking plant just on the outskirts of Sheffield in, in Rotherham. And similarly to what happened in Birmingham at Salt Gate, the plan was, because uh, we were about four months into the strike in 1984 at this point, um, to try and bring the strike to an end, the idea was to go to the coking plant uh, with miners from right across the UK, as far away as Scotland and Wales and, and right on the south coast, miners travelled. And the idea was if they could shut down the coking plant, which supplied the steelworks, then that would force the government to intervene and, and make an offer and, and save people's jobs. Um, unfortunately, as we've been discussing, the government and the police were ready for this sort of mass action. And where in the past uh, miners had been stopped from travelling to picket in other parts of the country, on that day at Orgreave, the opposite was true. Police were waiting at the motorways and guiding uh, miners in from all over the UK to where to park. Some miners had described it as being like attending a football match or a sporting event. They were actually being shown where to go to. And with hindsight, what unfolded later that day, um, people might have might have realised what was happening because the, the police uh, corralled all the miners and pickets into a huge big field. And then when the um, coking, uh, the lorries, the scab lorries that were carrying coke started to leave, leave or grieve, then riot horses and dogs and a vicious attack was set upon on the miners who were there that day who were, who were just dressed in T-shirts and jeans the police, you know, were there with the riot sticks, riot helmets. Um, a lot of the miners say that they thought that the military were involved because they, they were so you know, viciously attacked. There's never been any proof of the military being involved. Uh, but if you watch the videos of it online and the photographs of it online, it's absolutely shocking. N uh, 96 miners were arrested. 95 miners were arrested, sorry. And they were refused medical treatment. Um, when they were put into the police stations and held overnight. It was only hours later when the solicitors were let into the police station that they demanded that medical treatment were given to the miners. Mm. They described, you know, blood across the floor, uh, miners lying in their own sick and, and piss, uh, with cracked skulls, broken arms, all the rest of it. It's an absolute miracle no one were killed that day. Yeah, And a lot of the miners who were arrested and beaten up and fitted up can't go back to Orgreave because it's too, you know, it's too emotional for them. Yeah. Some of the miners were then put on bail uh, and some of them were actually locked up as well, you know. So it was an absolutely vicious attack. And like Morag's alluded to and we talked about Salt Legate, the, the, the government and the police knew what they were doing that day. Uh, they weren't going to allow another Salt Legate. And they thought, you know, the strike's gone on for four months now and they're going to teach the teach the miners a lesson and uh, and yeah if, if people haven't seen the footage and the photographs just go on google and have a look it's um, absolutely shocking what happened that day yeah and, and and you know in our book and others there's some incredible eyewitness accounts that really you know 
put a lump in your throat when you're listening to them, I think. One of the unique things about Orgreave as well was it was the first time that they used short shields and truncheons together. And that was, again, it was a new tactic from the manual. Um, and they also had the power to incapacitate protesters, apparently just for being there. Yeah. So, you know, and then another unique, not maybe not unique, but another aspect of Orgreave is that um, the police put out a narrative that the miners had attacked the police first, Mm-hmm. And the BBC filmed it and they reversed the footage to show that the miners had attacked the police first. And it, it was a number of years later before the BBC admitted that mistake. Now, uh, I've got a lot of questions over that because mm-hmm. when you look at the news reports um, yeah. now, there's a lot of mistakes in those reports. The use of language, you know, they say Arthur Scargill's got a military tactic, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms yeah. of... Um, military involvement I've actually just read in the last couple of weeks in in a new file that's been released from the National Archive that the government wanted to increase police powers and you know have these tactics so they wouldn't have to get the military involved so the more I research it the more I think yeah there was possibly military tactics but I'm not sure I've, I've also not found any evidence that the military were involved they certainly used the military barracks for the police to stay in yeah and that you know um and then in a later dispute not so much this one i don't think you know the the strikers at, at whopping say you know the police were under five foot ten and in the uk at that time you had to be over five foot ten yeah you know so <laughs> to be a police officer so you know there are definitely still questions but yeah no evidence i think it's no surprise that these stories start in mining communities because um, they suffered such an horrific beating that day. Mm-hmm. They've never experienced anything like it. And and by the way, miners aren't um, snowflakes by any chance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, they're pretty they're solid fellas. Um, so it, it, to experience that level of violence and, and see your workmates, you know, beaten with an inch of their lives sometimes yeah. um, and must have been quite a terrifying experience for them. So I think that's where them rumours come from. Yeah, and yeah. on that level, does it matter if it was the police? They were beaten no, up. Yeah. You know? matter, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the main thing is the government and the police, in my view, colluded to bring down, mm-hmm. you know, a, a trade that gave people jobs for lives. And yes, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a clean and healthy trade, if you like, but they didn't do anything to replace it. it you know, yeah. they ruined communities yeah. and beat them up in the process. Yeah, and then blame them for it. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think you know it's it's not too much to say. I was um, I was in England reporting on the the 2019 election and sort of watch it and went to some you know northern former mining communities and just people just seemed like literally they'd had sort of the spirit beaten out of them. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and you know from the files that have been released already. It's obvious that Thatcher's involvement, in my view, well, it, no, it's just not my view. It is obvious that Thatcher's involvement alone, having denied being involved, having denied the government had anything to do with the miners' strike, yeah. is enough for an inquiry into Orgreave. You know, yeah. we can prove now that she was involved directly in Orgreave, um, the policing of, and there, yet there are still government files that are held back, some of them until 2072, I think. If they've, ho- if they've released what they've released, what's being held back? It just it blows my mind because the, what's been released is already damning enough. So, you know, the, you know Joe and, and others are really fighting hard to, to get an inquiry. 
Um, and their reasons for not having that inquiry are ever changing. So it's just excuses. Yeah. Um, for for listeners who don't who don't realise the connection as well, it, just a, a few years later, and just three miles down the road at Sheffield Wednesday Football Ground, that's where the Hillsborough disaster was, and it was the same police that were involved at Hillsborough, uh, where we saw ninety six football fans killed, and the same fabrication of evidence. Um, you know, police collusion in writing up evidence, blaming the football fans like they blame the miners. Yeah. And then the same media outlets who peddled the stories about miners attacking police in yeah. the football case. It was football fans stealing from each other and causing the disaster there. So these patterns of, you know, cover up uh, repeat themselves unless they're exposed. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth sort of noting, right, that this is a broader part of the story of why we haven't seen significant strike activity very much in the intervening 30, 40 years, right? It's it's this sort of not just breaking of strikes, but breaking of, of sort of the entire working class sense of themselves. Yeah, definitely. You know, something that's really hard to bear for us who live, who live in mining communities, um, you know, the old tactics of divide and rule have, uh, have really worked. Um, when people have got nothing, it's easier to rub down on them with less than and fight the people up above. You know, our communities have been absolutely destroyed. And where, where we see communities that have been left behind like that, then all the things that your listeners can probably guess happen, uh, where there were once, you know, proud families where people looked after their communities, looked after each other, and now, um, you know, infested with drugs and antisocial behavior and all the rest of it so not only did they take people's jobs away in a lot of in a lot of instances they took their hope away from them as well and and people turned to all sorts of different solutions to that don't they whether that's drink or drugs or far-right politics or whatever that might be and 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 that's the legacy of what the uh the miners strike did to us yeah. And so talk a little bit about sort of specifically what happened to unions after the miners' strike. The 90s especially were a very depressing time to be a trade unionist in Britain. Uh, that was the time when I cut my teeth as a young trade unionist as well. Basically, what happened to the unions in Britain is that they retreated into their shells a bit like a tortoise would. And they re- repudiated action a lot of the time. They were scared of taking action. The militants were seen as being militants and ridiculed for it, saying, you know, if they, if they could beat the miners, if they could beat the printers, what chance have you got, etc. And and so what the union bureaucracy did um, is try and replace militancy and direct action to retreat to a sort of servicing model where they could help individuals out, um, don't rock the boat, wait for the Labour government to come in under Tony Blair. And he was great, wasn't he? Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, and even worse than that, try and get people to join the union by giving them days out at Alton Towers or selling them cheap spectacles and things like that, or cheap car insurance. And what happened there is there was just a huge decline in union membership and, and therefore a huge decline in action as well. You know, that's what's why we're so excited at the minute in Britain to see this this transformation and people getting back out on the picket line and finding finding their voice again. Yeah. Um, yeah, the 90s were a particularly dark period for British trade unionism, I would argue. 
Yeah. I did want to follow that up with with just asking about the union's relationship with the Labour Party. Obviously, um, yes, you said Tony Blair, uh, Margaret Thatcher's <laughs> greatest accomplishment, she said. But yeah. So the union's relationship with the Labour Party post Thatcher, you had New Labour, you had the sort of Brown and Miliband years and then Corbynism. And now we've got Keir Starmer. And how has that relationship sort of been intertwined with this this shell model of uh, of the unions, right, of this fear of real militant action? You know, in terms of uh, Labour and the, the laws that the Tories brought in, you know, just before Labour came into power, um, the Criminal Justice Act was brought in. And, you know, Starmer criticised the Labour government for abstaining on that. Um, Mike, I think it was Michael Mansfield, the barrister for some of the minors, he said, you know, the, the real test will be when Labour get into power, will they repeal some of these laws? Right. You know, in, instead, Labour... Blair's New Labour built relations with the police. Um, they introduced a new law for every day they were in power, so three thousand new criminal laws for criminal acts. Uh, you know, it's, it's an astounding figure. When I first heard it, I was really, you know, quite shocked. But you know, and now, you know, when Blair got into power, they similar to now, they said they're the party that means business. And, you know, right. who knew that that meant corporation rather than someone that was going to roll up their sleeves and help the working classes? So, yeah. Yeah. I think going back to the sort of Blair years as well, not only did yeah. Blair double down on, on, on some of the laws like Morad's been talking about, what they also did, which I thought were sort of pernicious and undermining a, a trade union movement, is that they did bring in some laws to benefit workers. Uh, but not in a collective sense. They were all, always in an, an individual sense. So when you were arguing with my fellow trade unionists as a young worker, um, for example, if you know you could be tooped to another company if your company was being bought out, workers would say to you, oh, well, there's laws for that that will support us. And I would always say to them, like, good luck with that. Like, when, Whenever did you find a Tory judge coming <laughs> down on the side of, side of workers? Or we had the um, uh, minimum wage introduced under under new labor as well which quickly became the statutory wage for just about 80 percent of the jobs in the country right because yeah. you know just because it's legal it doesn't make it justifiable in my in my um yeah. in in my opinion and and then recently you know what we've seen with uh, fire and rehire is where companies are so bold they don't care if there's laws in place anyway if it's cheaper for them to get rid of workers at the drop of a hat then that's what they'll do yeah. And it's only by standing up as a collective uh, of workers and taking collective action and direct action, which we've talked about so much, yeah. is when workers have the best chance of winning. And that's why we're so excited, like I said, <laughs> to see that um, see that taking place again. Yeah, it's it's almost like uh, you get labour in just to solidify the things that the Tories have done. Sounds familiar over here is all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I should imagine so, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I just wanted to ask one more question about Keir Starmer, which Morag and I have talked about before, but like he kind of plays an interesting role in in some of these stories of policing and and uh, a notable switching of side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I counted up just before the call that he appears seven times in the book. Yeah. <laughs> and you can see his progression um through that. But you know, he he kind of starts off, you know, going back to Orgreave he wrote at the time that no one should be surprised that if you apply power military policing at Orgreave, then they're going to reappear, you know, at future events. And the police of any sort 
that is unaccountable stands directly in the path of any progress towards social emancipation. And, you know, in the role, and he talked, he questions the role of the police and civil society at that time in the mid 80s, you know, yeah. asks what they're for, who controls them, what benefit are they for, um, etc. And then he he's an observer throughout all the, these stories that we tell. As I said earlier, he criticizes the Labour government, tries to keep them to account, becomes deep director of public prosecutions and is all of a sudden prosecuting rioters rather than protesters um, for for nicking a couple of bottles of water and putting around very harsh sentences. Um, and, you know, I was really saddened at the weekend when um, the Labour Party's response to the police's very draconian arrests of protesters before they even got to the protest is, well, I'm not sure if we can roll back these laws. And, you know, also in his early career, Starmer really criticised a lack of robust opposition. Yeah. And what I've seen in the last year or so is them saying, well, we'll help the government. And that, yeah. as you've just said, Sarah, it, it seems that maybe they get into power to ratify yeah. and normalise of what yeah. the Tories have done sometimes. Yeah, and just to say that those those protests this weekend, that was at the coronation, right? Yes, yeah. it was. Well, then they didn't, you know, some of them didn't even get to protest. They they turned up um, and before they even walked onto Trafalgar Square, they're, they're Republicans, uh, to protest the coronation and the king, they were arrested and some of them had even been speaking to the police yeah. for the months beforehand and the police said, no, we're not going to interfere with peaceful protest. Right. Right. And so then there's the, the policing bill that was introduced, gosh, two years ago now and uh, all yeah. of that. And they, they introduced some new laws literally a couple of days before the coronation um, right. that were, were signed off by the monarch in relation to last weekend. So the police are saying that they are using those powers. They said that initially that they had intelligence to show that these protesters were going to be disruptive or violent. They've now rolled back on that this afternoon, saying they didn't have that intelligence. Yeah. Um, which is a recurring theme. You know, the narrative changes, I'm sure Joe yeah. knows, that <laughs> they vilify protesters and then say, oops, sorry, that wasn't quite the way yeah. it happened. Back to today's Tory government um, and Boris Johnson's Tory government, which there's not a lot of distance between the two, I guess. Yeah, so we saw this this really draconian policing bill. We've seen now they're pushing a bill to enforce sort of minimum services um, when public sector workers go on strike. They have a big majority, unfortunately, although every time there's a special there's a you know special election, they lose a little bit of it. Um, but yeah, what? I guess, what effect are, are these laws having and what is the sort of public response to those and how does that connect to the strike wave? Um, I think it, it, it's, that, that's quite a difficult question to answer because um, we've not had to test the anti-strike laws yet. Right. Um, that they're still, they still haven't fully come, in, come into power with the protest laws. Um, again, I think some of them will be tested in, in, in the court of law. Uh, but throughout history from... You know, from when I well, from prior to make myself sound ancient, um, but from, <laughs> but throughout the sort of protesting that I've been involved in, that even when they do bring in new laws, it, it never really stifles dissent. Yeah. It, it, in fact, it can sometimes have have the op- opposite effect. Yeah, um, well, certainly the policing know, bill did, right? Yeah, the the um, yeah, we had a huge outpouring of anger against the policing bill in the nineties. 
Um, like I said earlier, when I was cutting my teeth as a young trade unionist and activist, we had the Criminal Justice Bill, which saw huge uprisings against it. And the politicians are quite clever when they spin um, why they're bringing these new laws in. They'll yeah. say, oh, it's just to stop the environmentalists from stopping the motorway. Right. It's, it's only when you're on a picket line and get arrested under that law that you realise it wasn't just the hippie that yeah. Rishi Sunak was talking about. It was actually you or your family member. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think we'll have to wait and see how that how that plays out. Um, Unite have said, you know, publicly and passed motions on this that we we won't necessarily act within within the law. If laws are there that stop us from striking, then we'll we'll continue to strike. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm confident that our members will will continue to go out and take that action. Yeah. And there's been a real backlash. I don't know if that's reached America yet, but there's been a real backlash over the weekend about what happened. I mean, almost immediately. It wasn't just social media. Yeah. Within half an hour, the BBC had quite prominently six protesters, peaceful protesters, have been arrested. Yeah. And then various journalists who you wouldn't normally expect to come out for a protest also pushed back. So that's been really quite interesting that they probably realise that these laws, which unfortunately are already passed, yeah. are as draconian as they are when they did nothing when other people were screaming. These are incredibly draconian, regressive laws and he and there's a Tory there's a Tory peer come out this afternoon and he said they need to the law needs to be revised again and it needs to go back and looked at um but what slightly worries me is that if we are heading in this direction the law is that you're only allowed six pickets yeah and there there have been mass pickets mass yeah. protests or pickets mixed in with protesters if you like and it worries me i think i've said to you before joe that the police are going to stop that at some point yeah we've had the we've had the six picket rule for a long time now though right, yeah. no um, I, I know but what i mean clear, is that's, that, that's six people on a picket line six yeah. people on a picket line no i know that law's been around for a long time but yeah. what i mean is you know there was a thousand people outside of king's cross for the yeah. RMT rally. Yeah, we, they were demonstrating, not picketing. Though. Exactly, but, but <laughs> <laughs> as we know, our police can interpret in any way they want. Yeah, of course, no. <laughs> yeah, no. so that's what I mean. There, I think at one point they may try. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure they'll be successful, but they yeah. might try and say, "Joe, yeah. this isn't." six pickets this is a thousand pickets we'll have to cross that bridge when we get to it exactly but i'm I'm worried about that bridge coming ever closer yeah i mean if looking at the rests on saturday as well if you if you you don't take much sort of analysis to realize that they're not even confident in their new laws anyway because Mm -hmm. out of the 64 people arrested only four were charged and two of those people that were charged were charged for like possession of drugs (laughs) Um, so there's only actually two people charged under the new laws anyway so even the police themselves aren't confident in our art or even know how to use them alternatively they took people out to stop try and stop any protest Uh, which they've done historically already exactly the miners strike there were hundreds and hundreds of miners thousands in fact arrested and and part of their bail conditions would mean they couldn't attend picket lines Mm -hmm. and they've, they've done that you know, ever since the eighties, really, I've been a victim of them laws myself. Yeah, um, and I, th- I think they did 
because I read this morning that they have lifted the bail conditions now of the protesters that they arrested. So, you know, there may have been bail conditions restricting them to go into an area. Yeah, yeah I, I was once arrested at a, a train station and um, yeah. I was bailed not to return to any British rail train station. <laughs> Kind of rough. As it, yeah, as, as if somehow it was the train station that was making me angry somehow. <laughs> so to, to sort of wrap up, because I know I've kept you guys a while here, it does seem, though, that, that Rishi Sunak is not making the, the kind of Thatcher strategic move with the unions. It seems a little bit like maybe he's bitten off more than he can chew. Is that something you're feeling right now from what's what it looks like on the ground? I'd like to think so. Um, but I think because they've got such a big majority at the minute, in Parliament, that they're doing, I don't know how to describe it, like a scorched earth policy almost, because mm-hmm. um, they're bringing in these old raft of new laws, yeah. and they're not doing anything to tackle the rampant profiteering that's going off that's making people so angry. Um, a lot of the companies, private companies and the government, know how much, just how much to offer members to make them accept a deal. Um, they're offering back pay a, a lot of the time in, in when they're settling disputes. And if you've been out in dispute for a long time and, you know, your employer or the government says, we'll give you £3,000 in back pay yeah, and you've got a big credit card bill or you can't pay your mortgage that month, you know, right. some people are, are, are falling for that because they're, they're desperate and they need the money. So I think we'll have to see how it plays out. I think there's a, a lot of people saying, oh, the strike wave will come to an end, but I'm, I'm not quite so sure it will. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to roll on for a bit longer yet. And also I think, you know, Rishi Sunak, the government, you know, unlike Thatcher, they're attacking everyone at once. She attacked right, one at a time, yeah. you know, and they're, uh, you know, as Joe said at the beginning, they're attacking, attacking nurses, train drivers, bus drivers. These are the people who put their lives at risk during COVID. Yeah. And we all know that, you know, we all know that. Mm-hmm. So because Thatcher got rid of a certain sector of industry, that's all he's got left with the strong unions to attack. So maybe he has miscalculated because, as I said earlier, there's a huge gulf between what they understand and the reality of people's lives if you speak to them at a bus stop, as Joe said earlier. So I'm generally a little skeptical of terms like strike wave because they often seem to be more reflections of the media's projections than any actual wave of change per se. But I think what's unfolding in the UK certainly does seem like a wave of some kind. We've seen a wide array of workers, particularly civil servants, walking off the job across the country from railway workers and hospital staff to university lecturers and lawyers. And it's seen as some of the most significant industrial actions since the 1980s when strikes were brutally suppressed under Thatcher. But this wave is the product of many subsurface ripples of anger, frustration, and historical memory. The interview with Rollins and Livingston helps us put this in context, looking back at the Thatcher years, drawing a direct historical through line from the systematic police crackdowns on labor, most notably the mine workers, up to the present. The clampdown on organized labor during the Thatcher era had begun even earlier, following another strike wave known as the Winter of Discontent in the late 1970s, when widespread unrest and economic despair erupted in powerful work stoppages, leading to massive economic disruptions and a lot of public frustration. 
The unrest in Britain paralleled similar trends in New York and other large U.S. cities at the time, as rampant inflation, fiscal crisis, and declining faith in government institutions both fueled the public workers' strikes and triggered the public backlash to those disruptions. Thatcher exploited public disdain for the strikers to push through legislation that severely curtailed strike activity. In the 80s and 90s, under both Thatcher and Major, unions were hammered by laws that restricted unions' rights to picket and required a vote to approve a strike. And in the U.S., organized labor was similarly weakened and marginalized during the neoliberal Reagan era. In both the U.S. and the U.K., the rise in strikes that we've seen in recent months in some ways mirrors the last time labor unrest crested in the 1970s, just ahead of a conservative surge that weakened labor through policy as well as political and media hostility. And we may well be in for another right-wing backlash now. Maybe we're already seeing it. It's sometimes apparent in the demonization of public sector unions, for example, that we've seen in recent years, in which public sector workers are presented as a symbol of basically everything the right hates. Back in the 1960s, public sector workers successfully fought for a strong so-called social wage, which included not just supporting decent compensation for workers, but also public goods, such as parks, mass transit, and schools. But as Nelson Lichtenstein wrote, quote, in the 1970s, the social wage left the newly militant public employee unions exposed to the resentment and attack of those who sought to stigmatize the social entitlements newly legitimated during the previous decade. These unions were a convenient, vulnerable, and racially tinged scapegoat, resented by that growing portion of the urban working class whose incomes were stagnant, unquote. However, one of the things that makes the current strike wave powerful in both the UK and the US is the level of community support that workers seem to have gotten. As Sarah noted, effectively organized strikes can win broad public support, even admiration. And how people respond to a show of power by workers greatly reflects the political climate that they're operating in. Similar to the late 70s in the US and the UK, young workers today on both sides of the pond view the future with uncertainty and anxiety. The late 1970s saw the birth of punk, embodying a general sense of nihilism and no future among the children of postmodern, deindustrializing Britain and America. Will the grievances of this generation give rise to a cultural renewal of the labor movement, or will young people just spiral into despair and bitterness? It's probably too early to tell whether something has really shifted in the long term in attitudes towards unions strikes and workplace organizing, but strikes in the U.S. are up by an estimated 50% in 2022, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and there appears to be a similar surge in recent months for the U.K. The apparently renewed interest in labor in a younger generation of workers also reflects how the relative weakness and political inertness of mainstream unions since the 1980s has perhaps worked to labor's advantage in a weird way. Maybe the negative associations with unions have faded, and perhaps people are just fascinated by the idea of unions, precisely because among workers in non-union workplaces with little collective memory of unions in their communities, organizing at work is seen as something fresh and exciting. When attending the rallies for Starbucks workers here in Ithaca, I noted how many of the unionized Starbucks workers were super young and had never had much or any experience with unions nor with organizing prior to joining Starbucks Workers United. But they had something more important than experience. They had an openness to new experiences, to connecting with people and to satisfying that very basic primal urge to build community and protect it. The same qualities are what the labor movement could use more of these days, so maybe those kids will teach union leaders something about turning aspirations into reality. 
Yet, once again, anti-labor politics and policy may undercut this rising trend of militancy among young workers, with new restrictions in the UK on strikes and public demonstrations in general, and in the US, a resurgent right wing, along with a reactionary Supreme Court that will soon rule on the case of Glacier Northwest versus International Brotherhood of Teamsters, a case which could greatly limit the scope of strike activity under the National Labor Relations Act. So, the current influx of labor activism that we're seeing in the UK and the US is going to be shaped by a dialectical tension between the growing anger, fear, and anxiety of the working class on the one hand, and on the other hand, the conservative forces that will inevitably exploit social unrest to attack, suppress, and divide any kind of social change movement that threatens the status quo. And if past this prologue, we've got a long fight ahead of us. And that is it for this episode of Belabored. Thank you to Casey Stone and Natasha Lewis for helping us sound good. And once again, if you'd like to support our independent journalism, please go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And you can get all of our archived episodes at dissentmagazine.org, where you can also support us by subscribing to Dissent Magazine. And of course, we'd love your feedback. If you're part of the strike wave in the UK, if you have any memories of what it was like to go on strike back in the 70s and 80s, if you are currently trying to organize or are currently on strike at a Starbucks or any other workplace has historically never been organized. We want to hear from you. You can get in touch with us by email at belabored at dissentmagazine.org, or you can reach us on the Twitters at hashtag belabored. See you in two weeks for the concluding episode of this season of Belabored with Socket Sony, author of The Great Escape. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.